This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Cunnin Jones, author of Still Aside. I think I work to a stage where I can basically look a book in the eye and go, well, that's the, you know, that's the best book I could write at this moment in the circumstances I was required to write it. We'll be back with Cunnin Jones in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved. Time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. We are going through monumental changes as a society right now, and as I discussed in an episode earlier this year with the writer Claire Massoud, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. Whether this is your first time listening or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and organization more than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of the conversations that you've heard before and you're about to hear again on literary craft, content, and practice as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Cunnan Jones, author of five novels, including The Dig, Cove, Everything I Found on the Beach, and most recently, Still Aside. He lives in Wales and has won several awards, including Wales Book of the Year Fiction Prize and the BBC National Short Story Award. His short fiction has been widely published, including in Granta and The New Yorker. His novel Still Aside reveals a world where water is commodified and allocated, primarily to those living in the cities. 
It is shipped on a heavily guarded water train through the countryside to be delivered to the populated areas. In the northern regions, icebergs are captured and brought down to Britain as a major water supply. The story is told in short chapters featuring a variety of characters in one community, including a police officer who guards the train and his dying wife, protesters on the streets, scientists discovering endangered species, and those who support and oppose the world where water is rationed and allocated as a political tool. Still aside, the word means a continual dripping of water. Originally, Cunning Jones wrote Still Aside as a BBC 12-part radio series. We began the interview with Cunning Jones sharing the impetus for the story. Actually, a lot of my ideas arrive initially um, as an image. So an image is the thing which really fires the idea or brings fire to the idea. Obviously, you're always thinking about things that you want to write about, the human condition or the state of the world. The landscape around me generally throws up those ideas, just being where I am, um, constantly imbues me with what-if scenarios. So ultimately, I'm make-believing the world that I live in, if you like. And this image of a train, this huge armored train filled with water hurtling through the landscape to take water to a city was really the initial spark that sort of brought me to the idea of writing a story with the commodification of water at its center. So it wasn't a reaction to climate crisis. It wasn't that I wanted to write something about climate crisis and this was the solution to writing that. It was actually driven by a a very physical image. How did these images come to you? Are you just walking and all of a sudden like you have this visual flash or do you are you thinking about things and it sort of bubbles up? I think it really fascinates me where ideas come from and how they find themselves bouncing together. There's a there's a Greek philosopher Empedocles who had a very early theory of what you could call natural selection. And he believed that the world before the world as we know it existed in a as a kind of ooze in which there's lots of body parts that float around and bump into each other and connect. And if the head of a fish and the tail of an eagle and the body of a cow connects, it's not a viable organism. So we don't have those animals. But if all the right bits to make a cow connect, then a cow is formed and it stands forth and demands to exist. And I guess that's how I feel stories happening in my head, that there's ideas floating around all the time. And what they're looking for in some respects is more things to join them in order to create something significant enough to step out of my imagination. And those flashes that you talk about, those visual flashes happen, certainly. Also, I tend to experience the world and have done since I was very young look at the human condition through things I see in the natural world. So a lot of it's quite allegorical. You know, I'll understand something by seeing something else occur that will shed light on perhaps how we behave or think or make decisions as humans. But in terms of stillicide, the image did come as a pre-packaged whole thing while I was just in the rain, in, in very heavy rain with a hood up. I don't generally wear hoods. I don't like them. But it was heavy enough to have my hood up and just the sound of the rain, the enclosure that created. And I just had this vision of a man out on a line waiting to protect this huge train coming past. So it, 
everything else that came with Stillside was sort of in the in the um, whirlwind of that train, if you like, in the in, in the air behind it. Wow. So it sounds kind of like that idea was like ordering takeout instead of going to the grocery store and buying all the ingredients. Well, it depends. I think, you know, ideas, the problem with ideas is they're very often strongest in their purest form initially. And it's actually the, actually having to do something with an idea and make it into a story or a book is when the problems occur because there's such purity to some of these, uh, these, these, like I said, these takeaway ideas are just there, ready to go. It doesn't necessarily make them easier. It's often the case. I remember when I was very young, I used to draw all the time. That's my, my big thing. I, I, I didn't want to color them in. I always thought, if I color this in, I'll wreck it. You know, I used to do these meticulous outlines of birds, usually, and other wildlife. And people and teachers always say, oh, now color it in. You go, I'll mess it up if I color it in. You know, So I think there's an idea, there's something about an idea that has that risk to it as well you know it's full it's it's huge but the actual building of it and the coloring in of it and the creating it on the page um take away or not it's still it's still a real challenge sometimes so how does that relate to your satisfaction or being at peace with the final product because i think when you begin an idea like you're saying you have it's like this idealistic form and when you see it through in your mind it maybe comes out perfectly but then when you start writing it gets real. And how do you, how does that square for you? I mean, ultimately you, you fail everything. Um, and I think that's a very important point of writing in that it drives you to be a better writer, drives you to write the next thing. It's, it arms you with, you know, each time you write something different, you, you're gaining writing muscle, you're gaining different techniques and you carry those forward to the next piece of writing that you do. But there's always something that I suppose you, you fail um, in in regards to getting the idea across with as much power as you can. So th the only thing I, I think I work to a stage where I can basically look a book in the eye and go, well, that's the you know that's the best book I could write at this moment in the circumstances I was required to write it. And you have to send it out there, and then you have to accept other people's reaction to it. And what you can't do is apologize for a book or feel that there's something you should have done better that you didn't address properly. And so this book I read was a radio miniseries in 12 parts. So once you had that idea, did someone commission you and you thought that idea you had would be good? Or how did that work? And then how did you, the creative process then happen? Well, on the back of the New Yorker story, uh, The Edge of the Shoal, that went on to win the BBC National Short Story Award, I was in an event speaking at Cambridge University and the head of Radio 4 Books, Di Spears, was there, and she asked me to pitch an idea for 12 interrelated stories. They'd need to stand alone, should the listener only hear one of them or a few of them, but ideally would have a kind of coherence as a group, would, would, would be more than the sum of their parts if they were heard together. And I expect they thought that I'd send back a pitch that would be more in line with the novels I'm known for, you know, something very much based here in West Wales, quite agricultural community, something quite up close. And actually, I'd had this idea for Still Aside for a long time. It was a huge world. From that original image of the train, a huge number of options and different stories and different characters had grown. And I'd actually always seen it as a book, a piece of writing that would be most effective if 
those stories dropped, if you like, into a pool that gathered to create this greater narrative. And finding that word stillicide, which actually I found when a number of people in the same 10 days after Cove came out suggested I read William Golding's Pincher Martin, I found this word stillicide, which I didn't know. And seeing what it meant, this water falling in drops and gathering, that just really, really kind of unlock the idea of how to build the narrative of a story about water. So that happened quite a while before the BBC commission. I was working on a novel at the time the commission was offered and stopping that was quite a, a big call. But ultimately it was a fit. I didn't necessarily feel ready to write Still Aside, but here was a fit. It was a set of different stories that pulled together. There we go. You've got to take these opportunities. So that's what I did. So let's talk about the the plot and the story itself. As you mentioned, you had this vision of a train. And in this world that you're writing about, um, it's unclear exactly what year and exactly where it is in the UK. But basically, water is a very hot commodity in demand. The, the weather is, it's kind of drought or sometimes there's big rainstorms. And so the people in the city don't have enough water. So there's kind of two things going on. Um, one is that there's a train going through the country. It goes through the countryside that carries water. And it's, it's almost like it's carrying a nuclear bomb or something. It's very contentious. People attack the train. It's such a hot commodity and people need it. And agriculture is really suffering. So the city people can have water. So there's that going on. And another way to solve the solution of not having enough water is to go up north and basically harpoon icebergs and carry them back to, to Britain to then melt them out um, to serve as a water source for people. So you have those things going on. That's right. It's really about how different communities are solving the problem of water. And it it's likely as we go forward that there won't be less water, but more water falling out of the sky, certainly in the next couple of decades. So it isn't that there's a necessarily a scarcity. It's a mismanagement and that act of in some cases, the commodification of it that's in the grip of the sort of people who perhaps historically would, would have a grip on petrochemicals or whale oil or sugar or tobacco, you know, the sort of big business corporate uh, thing which which claws the things that people need. And, and, and there's that. There's people fixing their own problems water-wise. Obviously, Britain's an island. One thing that didn't creep into the final 12, but there's reference to, is the desalination ideas. But most imaginatively, I think, is and it's again, it's an image-based idea, was the idea that there would be a huge dock in the center of the city into which this gigantic iceberg would be towed. Um, already, people are using icebergs privately, those people that can afford it. So yeah, really, it's about the management of this commodity in a in a, under hugely overpopulated circumstances. I think that's important to point out that it's also not just the scarcity of water, it's the growing population and the use of water that that requires. In addition to these big lofty philosophical ideas about climate change and overpopulation and resource commodification, it's also a story about community. You get down to the people telling the story. You highlight various members who are interconnected in different ways. And, and each chapter basically talks about the perspective and life circumstances of an individual character. 
And and it is true, you can't really look at these big issues of climate change without looking at individual lives and people. And I'm wondering if you can talk about sort of your approach of telling the story that way. And then we can talk about some of the characters in, in your community. Absolutely. I think it was important to keep the eye on the people that were affected by this and who lived in this world rather than forefront the, the huge issues and history, those those big sweeps. I tend to write stories where the greater, bigger issues are actually the backdrops um, because we're, you know, we despite those, we have to get on with everyday life and we have to just proceed. So for me, it's more fascinating to be writing about how individuals cope and get through the day-to-day existence in the face of whether it's opportunity or threat or hope, whatever it is, it's how you do the small things. So it was important to tell this big story through the activities of, in some respects, mundane life for some people who are just going about their business or their work. Um, And there was a lot of options. So the dozen that was required, there were far more than that written. There was a lot more world in the original exercise of putting the different ideas down we there was a lot more outside the city there were there were more exaggerated characters there were quieter characters and it was really a way of me trying to locate through whose eyes the most effective way would be to get the idea of the whole across and the real state without being too judgmental about about the, the state of history and climate at the time and it, it opens with a man called John Branner. He is a police officer and he is guarding the train and they have infrared technology or some sort of sensor technology where they can tell if someone's near the train, there's a red dot and they try to capture and or kill whoever might be threatening the train. And so it opens and there's this red dot and he's going out to look at it and the the train can automatically shoot the red dot, but he wants to go out and see what it is because he doesn't want to kill an animal uselessly if it's an animal. And there's some tension between his bosses because they just probably want to shoot it and he wants to take the time to investigate and then at the same time his wife is dying and so he's really facing these existential questions about life and what is life worth and is this you know is this worth it and in the very first chapter when we meet him you end that chapter with this line that says it's all you have now duty which seems to point a little bit to maybe feeling just so defeated by everything and finding reason to live. I'm curious to know more about his character and deciding to start with him. And if I said anything incorrectly, please correct me. No, I think again, you're you're understanding what the drive of that first tale is. And there was a big call really in, in structuring the book to give the reader a very clear idea in the first couple of sentences as to what happens at the end of his narrative so it's an ellipsic sort of an elliptic shape in regards to its narrative and in fact that opening wouldn't suit the radio it didn't suit the radio it's too hard you can't do what happens in the opening of the book on british radio on sunday evening so the opening of the radio story actually was more of a world setting and it was about people in the tower waiting do we send branner out okay branner out you go it talks more about rain there's a few more 
a bit more signposting about the, the lack of water and what the train does. But I really felt keeping it in the book was vital to get the character of Branna in that existential situation that he's been dragged into by his wife's illness really at the forefront of the overall story, which I, it's a love story. And so that was key to create. It's hard to talk about without giving away perhaps what happens, but he's in the situation where he is, as you say, more or less defeated. The two things which define him are his, his wife, his love for his wife and his sense of duty to his job. And he also has an opportunity to end his life in that, uh, just let the train shoot. So really it's that question, who can he live without? Who, what can he live without? It's fairly clear that he is going to be left alone and he has an opportunity not to go through that pain. If that could have been handled more like a thriller, that could have been handled in a different way narratively. What I wanted it to be, though, was something which really focused on the love and his wife's voice, which again comes through in the stories that Branner appears in, and which leaves the book, I hope, with a question where the reader actually wants him to make a choice. They, they're, they're rooting for him, if you like. They want him to live, but then they suddenly remember, well, hang on, if, if he does this, we know what the result of that will be, which is a horrible thing. So it's, it's absolutely about the ambiguity of choice and how you have to ultimately take responsibility for love and even if that means you have to live past the ones that love you, I guess. It's so striking to me that even in the most devastating circumstances, like climate change or not having your most basic needs met with having enough water, it still comes down to the absolute people you love the most around you. Like that becomes the most important, like our resilience in a way, in terms of what we might face externally, it seems like all stories really end up being about people and holding on to the ones that they love. I think so. And I think this connects to the question you're asking about how you handle narratives that have these huge backdrops like climate crisis and how you write about the smallness of everyday life and it's essentially because that is what is real i think that those relationships we have are so fundamental like the relationship a parental relationship for example is so much more fundamental than concern for rising sea levels that one one of them albeit very very real is in some ways quite abstract because it's simply it is happening yes we can do things to moderate it as individuals we can make choices that are responsible so that this is slowed down but equally choosing to take your child out for a walk is more fundamental that's a that's a clumsy way of saying it perhaps but i think it is that we are we work on small levels these massive small levels uh, but yet we spend a lot of our energy and time discussing huge things which perhaps we can't affect if we all maybe focus more on the responsibility on the smaller level then the greater level would actually be more healthy and i guess that's again fed into the choice to write still aside in a way that was about smaller things so that it could reflect that responsibility and I think it's also, you know, it's also a story about community and how you keep communities together. The, the, the train covers a, a, a large geography, 
However, there are certain areas with the solution of the ice docks and bringing these icebergs in that will displace whole communities relocate them, knock down their houses. And so there's protests about that. And so you have these things in contrast, the need to survive, like perhaps we need water or because we're not allocating it right in, in our political sphere, my, the consequences to me are that I have to move my house. And so that is going on. And I was going to ask you a little bit more about that element to the story. And there's a line in there I think Stephen said that, and and feel free to share who Stephen is, but I think he said, we live in a society, we can't always take every individual to account. And he's talking, I think, about bringing in this doc and like the, the good of the whole might be to the destruction of a few. That's right. I mean, it's something everybody understands. We do live in communities and we all have to moderate our, our desires and our behavior accordingly and that's a very healthy thing what was interesting me in writing about the ice dock which is bang in the center of a huge city is that the people in that city itself were being displaced well for the for the better of the city you know in order to improve life in the city and i in, grew up inheriting kind of political landscape here in wales where entire communities were displaced in order for valleys to be flooded so that drinking water could be made available to cities in England, which is a different country. And this sort of dismissive idea that, well, it's just the countryside, it's just a village, you know, why don't, why don't they, they, they need to move out? So this is very real and people bombed these dams, people were arrested, it was very violent. I mean, it's still a very contentious issue. Those dams still serve the cities they were originally built for. Uh, and so it's an interesting question as to as a greater whole. And in fact, I think that in the book, those those references are there. They're implications mainly, but there are references to the dams and to the bombing of dams and the kind of terrorism in some respects that went on in the 60s, for example, in Wales, which is reflected in the future with some of the terrorism that's being directed towards the train or the reservoirs that are, the trains fills from. So this actually happened. This isn't fiction entirely these these are based on based on conundrums and based on on things that have occurred albeit in a slightly different setting you know there's a de- there's a definite attempt in the book i hope to try and balance both sides of those arguments to have a sort of view on displacement but also view on the greater good but always underscored by the question which does I think inform the book. A lot of the book is okay. Who's making the money? You know what is going on here, because there are there is a class of people out there who will always hold those strings. And regardless of the rhetoric, people are displaced, people are saved, people are helped. Where's the money going? Whose bank is that in? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a power structure involved. I think Stephen's role. I'm not quite sure. He he like worked for the company bringing bringing all this in. That's right. I mean, he's a face, really. He's somebody who's out there to put a shine on on these processes and to persuade people that the doc's a great idea. He's an executive in that respect who is out there to make it clear to people that some sacrifices have to be made and that this is an improvement, that this is history going forward. And actually, I say the fascinating thing about Stillicide as a whole to me, I talked about it being a huge story. There's so much more that happens. In my mind, 
I know exactly what happens to Stephen. I know where he's from. I know what he does next. Though some of those stories were written. I know how he sort of ends up in a breakdown. I know what he does because of that breakdown. I know what he decides to do as a result of the fake life or the or the, or the disingenuous way he's had to operate professionally. It's really fascinating to me writing from a perspective of knowing so much about this world, how much I was able to give in 12, 15-minute radio stories and how much of a kind of ripple effect that creates in people's curiosity going out there. So a lot of it was about restraint, absolutely. But there are, I think there are more stories to tell about some of these points. And is that because I think I read somewhere that you write a lot in your head before you ever get to the page? And is that because you have constructed these whole worlds for these characters and for the setting? But when you get to the page, you're just sort of condensing? In general, absolutely. I mean, that that process, that writing process is in my head primarily. And then when it feels ready, going back to what I said earlier about that kind of collision of different parts, if you like, that then becomes a an organism that's demanding to exist. When that happens and it feels ready, my job's to write it down as strongly as I can. And I do that quite intensely. Then comes the harder work of structuring it, nuancing it, finding exactly the right language to tell the story in. But still, this I'd have been floating around for a long time. And the commission was quite out of the blue. It was green lighted in October. And they wanted first drafts by January, which is effectively Christmas. So I sat down and I wrote a story a week for 12 weeks. I needed to get that dozen. I had three days of work. You know, I, had, I basically had three days a week to give to the story. I had a, another job. I had other commitments. I had a nine-month-old baby, so I did not want to disappear down the, the black hole that writing can be. I decided come six o'clock every evening, that was that. I'm not working weekends. So it was a very thrilling process that was extremely different to my usual way as you say of building it all in my head waiting until it's ready absolutely ready as far as it feels and then going about the business of writing it down it was a fact that it was all up here it hadn't found form and i had to sit down and i had to go right what are you writing about this week you're writing about this right put it down next week doesn't matter if it's not good enough you can improve it later next week different story next week different story so it's a process of going back into my brain over and over again to try and find you know find these stories right where's steven where's this guy where's the guy that works on the ice dock what else do i need i need someone up at the reservoir right who can she be bang um and it was sort of all up there but in a very fluid way which again suits the suits the topic and suited the the initial creative process do you think since you did it you would ever write that way again to just create some sort of semblance of order in your life yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. I think you can buy your own bullshit very easily when you write. And so, and it, it gets worse the more you have to speak about it. You go on stage and someone says, what's your process? Or you're an answered interview, what's your process? And you say, well, I, I write it all in my head. And then when it's ready, I like to sit down and I stay on my own for days and I create the first draft as quickly as I can and strongly. And then I do this and this and I need to be in a particular place and I need to not speak to anyone for two days at a time. And, and then, you know, you have a baby and you have a commission and you've already got a job and you just have to grow up. You have to go, nope, get in there, sit down and get it written. And so in some ways, it it really, it really did a, a very valuable job in teaching me that I can write despite anything else. It's just a case of focus. That said, 
again, we spoke about this earlier, there was, I did feel the pressure was off slightly because it was a commission, other people would be affecting it. It wasn't all on my shoulders. So yeah, absolutely. And I've done that since actually over, I'd enjoyed the process. So in March, I just decided, look, you, you're always writing under pressure now. You're always writing with somebody watching. So on Thursdays, you're going to just write for no reason and you're not going to tell anyone about it. And I wrote, you know, so it's happened. It, then lockdown was declared. It coincidentally happened. It, it, it's been through lockdown. But for 26 Thursdays, I just went into the writing shed and wrote stories. And that was great because there was absolutely zero pressure on them. And it was off the back of that thrill, I think, that came with sitting down to do still aside some Mondays going, I have no idea what I'm going to write here. I kind of know I need something about the lake, but let's, let's do it. Let's find the character. Let's, let's create a drama. Back to what you were saying about, about Steven and, and many of your characters where you have this whole reality built up for them, where you know everything about them, what happens to them and their past, but that doesn't make it to the page. Your writing's very spare. And so do you feel like that puts in an exciting way more pressure on the language that you can write language that is kind of pregnant with intimations of the past or the future, even with the, just the word choice that tells more than it is. That is exactly, that's exactly the duty. That's exactly the challenge of, of writing to me is how much work every word can do and the synthesis of that with the reader's own imagination and compassion and what they can unpack from each language choice or, or sentence structure even or it's all absolutely it's it's absolutely deliberate um, and it is that trust in the reader that carries that forward the fact that readers are creative imaginative compassionate emotional people themselves so you trigger them to to do the work for you in some respects we're talking about scales large and small in this story and so you have a chapter called dragonfly and there are some scientists who are investigating what's in the path of the glacier. And one of them discovers this potentially rare near extinct dragonfly. And I and and you end that chapter kind of with the idea like a dragonfly could stop an iceberg. And so you're leaving the reader in their mind, like the infinite and the minute. Yeah, an image again. I mean, the power of image to do work narratively is something I've always been thrilled by as a reader and have come to trust as a writer. It's you put that idea, just that sentence is enough to make that reader think, to find their own bigs and smalls and, and those contrasts and what stops what. It's just, I guess, a an absolute, in, in the most positive sense, an almost childlike love of image and the place of image and story and the questions that they can set. It was very much based again in, in reality that in the, in the, in the sway of big ideas, the smallest things can be pushed to one side, but actually they are the things that really count and make a huge or have a huge influence on final outcomes. So again, it's referencing the small acts of, care they're small acts of husbandry small acts of love small whatever else is going on on an everyday level against this great huge historic thing 
One of my favorite chapters was the chapter called Sound. And in this chapter, you open up and they're harpooning a calf and they're talking about groaning in the water and that it was young and had a sense of freedom. And so when you first start reading it, you think that maybe they're harpooning a whale. And as you go deeper, you realize they're just getting a break off of an iceberg and hunting it in a way like prey. It can hurt them if it's, if they, if they harpoon it and pull it in the wrong way, it could dump the boat over And at the end, they catch a fish and they seem like not to know at all what to do with it, which is, you know, the irony of that they're out there actually seeking water instead of food. And I'm wondering if you can, can you talk about this? It was, it was kind of playful and you're bringing people in through a little bit of a, of a mystery. Yeah. And I really, that playfulness, I think is something that I did try to bring to those stories. Cove and the dig particularly are you know they're hard books they are they might be beautiful they might be you know all sorts of other things but they there's not much room for play in those books and it was vital i think to create a a, a widest the widest possible sense of reactions in something like still aside and one of those reactions i wanted was just the dupe just to get them to have people hear it and think that they were doing this thing to a as you said to a whale and then oh it's an iceberg but to it gave it was an opportunity also to give the iceberg itself or the idea of an iceberg sentience so that instead of it just being a this commodity or an object the iceberg which is throughout the stories is imbued with some kind of soul some kind of character beyond just being a lump of ice the again that that level of water hunting water rather than hunting food the fact that i haven't seen fish fish that was in there you know and also the idea of it, it's called sound as you said but the idea of silence i would imagine people generally expect there to be on the sea on the open water and in the ice and to play with that and say no it's noise all this captain wants is peace and quiet he just wants the noise to stop the noise of the engine the noise of the effort leaving the city going out going out onto the water stories which left the city took place in different parts of of the landscape very important to me that it stayed for those reasons really it did a lot it did a huge amount of work for the collection i think you know while your book too looks at this big environmental like big environmental questions, it looks a lot at human pain, like individual pain, like loving and losing or the ends of relationships or how we relate to our communities or the love of our children, um, even the love of animals and and so much pain in there. But but I'm not saying that it's depressing. It's just, you know, something we, we have to face as humans. I guess the basis of stories is emotion. And if you shy away from emotion in stories, or if they don't have an emotional angle, an emotional weight, an emotional message, something, then they become followed. They're, they're entertaining. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But they do a very different job. And I guess I start any given piece of writing with a very clear idea of the effect that I want on at the end or a listener in this case as it was originally at the end of that piece and that's the goal so usually it's a synthesis of an image i know how i'm starting this all of the images 
what do I want to do to somebody? <laughs> you know, what do I want to do to someone at the end of this eighteen hundred word piece, twenty eight thousand word novel, whatever it is? And in that respect, the emotions of pain of loss, I guess, are what is under discussion here on the, on the on the wider sense and on the on, on the most personal and, and, and intimate sense. And ambition, I think, ambition is not necessarily something which is huge. It can be quite small. It can just be the need to sit on a bench and hear some peace for a while or to go and lie in the grass in the garden. So really it's about the, what we talked about right at the beginning. It's about the small ways we, we get through life. Um, and I don't mean small and negatable. I just mean those everyday actions. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I think everything you read influences you. I, everything I read influences me, that's for sure. So the people that I I really rate are the are writers who, when I read them, I just, I just, it's the level of technical ability, it's the narrative ability, the skill levels, and the 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 way that they can take risks and pull them off because of those those levels of ability. Have you ever heard of Colin McAdam, who's a Canadian novelist, and he published A Beautiful Truth? And it was about the same time that Grant assigned The Dig and came out around the time that, that The Dig came out. It's a book, I, I mean, I, it's it actually, when I read it, and it just made me want to snap my pens, I, I thought, what, what am I trying to do when I've, there's a guy out there that can pull off a story like this? It's ostensibly a very straightforward story as it starts about a childless couple who adopt a bonobo ape. Um, but he, just what he does in this book is absolutely mind-blowing. He essentially kind of creates a primate language in some instances that we intuitively understand. Uh, it's, a, it's an astonishing book and, and talking again about emotional end games and, and power. It's It's certainly one of the books which has most devastated me um so if i read from the opening it'll give you some idea of just the, the quality of his his word choice judy and walter walt ribka lived on 12 up and down acres open to whatever god gave them on the eastern boundary of addison county four foot deep in the years of rueful contentment judy was younger than walt her dreams had an urgent truth and five years had passed since they removed a cyst from her womb that was larger than a melon. Her uterus collapsed, and for a year she awoke to formaldehyde dawns, feeling sick and lonely and hopeless, no more chance of a child. Time passed and Walt stayed near. She held his hand when she sat or when she slept. They painted the house a lighter blue. On various nights, in various ways, Judy said, Do I feel old, Walter? And he said, You're too young to be old. Come here. Walt and his partners, Larry and Mike, had built or bought more than half of the commercial space in southeast and central Vermont. They provided the roofs, walls and drains around bakeries, cheese shops, notaries, public and all the unimaginable businesses sprung from the minds of people who could not conceive of working for other people. Walt believed in doing your own thing, finding your own way. The rent came monthly, businesses closed and opened. Walt made other investments, he gave thanks and shared his wealth paint for the church in perpetuity, books and shelves for the Beetle Eden Library. 
There were wealthy couples you read about where the man worked and the woman shopped and other people mocked or reviled them. Walt was in love and held close the fact that there was nothing more natural or right than buying the world for the woman of your dreams. Try to name the value of that smile to Walt and his life-worn heart. And Judy wanted little. She did not spend the day buying furniture and curtains. When dresses and shoes appeared in her wardrobe, they had usually been sought for and bought by Walt. Before the operation, she had wanted one thing, and after the operation, she tried to get used to not wanting. They said the desire for children would naturally dissipate, but a man who loses a leg does not stop wanting to dance. Do you want to share anything more about that? To be honest, I, I picked the book up and it took me two or three goes because phew, I sort of, I'm not in the mood for this right now. You know, this is a few years ago. It's probably back in 2014. But the minute I began to progress with the book, where it goes, the choices he makes as a writer, the bravery with which he writes this is, it's a masterpiece. It's absolutely astonishing. You definitely sold it to me. <laughs> good, good. Everyone, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I say it's that it absolutely encompasses my belief that writers should take risks and that readers should trust them too. And the only thing that really gives a writer the right to take those risks is is technical ability. And uh, it's just there in absolute doses in, in this book. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is sort of what you said there is me. That's my writing process. It all changes. Oh, some things don't. But, you know, I, I the dig, for example, was because I was under pressure to write a longer book. It was at one point a 90,000 word novel that started before the Second World War in Italy and came all the way up to the contemporary farmer and, you know, guy that sets dogs on badgers story that the dig became. And when I read that back, that 90,000 words, I realized the story was the the final section, so I chopped 60,000 words away in a one-er. Um, that, I guess, gave me the trust to approach Cove with more belief in instinctive choices. Um, and Cove was the most difficult thing I've written. If you, I tend to do that to myself. I tend to try to write things which I can't write so that the choices I'm making on the page are instinctive uh, not practiced that they're not this is not safe ground and when you have uh, the dig came out there was a lot of very positive criticism about how i write about place and about relationships with people and their their uh, integration into the place around them so obviously i then tried to write a book which was about a man who's hit by lightning out on a kayak his memories destroyed he can't remember his relationship properly. It perhaps only exists on the cell level. He doesn't know where he is, so there's no sense of place. And it was that that really created the the text difficulty, the the writing difficulty. Um, it took me it took me years. Um, it took me a couple of years, and it it was a real dogfight. Again, at one point, Cove was thirty thousand odd words. And Grant, they were quite happy. They 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 saw it going in the right direction. They kept saying, oh, look, just a bit more on this, or perhaps you could expand this section here. And it just felt wrong. It felt that I was doing something that wasn't right for the for the, for the the result of the book that I was looking for. And I parked it. I, I had a meeting with Granta. It was already out there. They, they'd already announced to the shop. It was on websites. It had a publication date. And I said, look, I'm not, I'm not publishing this. This is, this isn't the right book. 
And to be fair, they were they were great. After after the initial shock, they sort of said, "Okay, well, why?" Um, and I think it was really down to my desire to write the best book, not the next book. So I actually, took months away from from Cove. I let it settle in my head, and then I came back to it and I started to write it again, without any notes, just start again. So many of those sentences that stayed in the book were actually identical to the earlier drafts that I'd not looked at. But when I finished the book, it was eleven and a half thousand words. And uh, I had to go back to Grant and say, like, I, but it's it's eleven and a half thousand words. Uh, happily, they they felt that it was a strong enough thing to go out on its own anyway. Um, and it is a novel, as far as I'm concerned. So I'll read. It, it really it very much fits the remit that it was a difficult, difficult book to write. I'll read the opening. He is holding his hands in the water rubbing the blood from them when the hairs on his arms stand up. They sway briefly, like seaweed in the current, then lie down again. He looks up, a strange ruffle come across the surface. He is far enough out for the land to have paled in view. The first lightning strikes out somewhere past the horizon. At first, he thinks it's some sudden glint. The thunder happens moments later, and he feels sick in his guts. A metallic sheen comes to the water, like metal much touched, the white clouds go a sort of leaden at the edge. There was enough delay, he thinks. A delay. Sees the rain as a thick dark band moving in, starts to paddle. Then there is a wire of electric brightness, a rumble that seems to echo off the surface of the water. He counts automatically, assesses the distance to land, the coast still a thin wood-coloured line, Another throb of light. The wind picks up, cold air, moving in front of the storm. And then there is a basal roll, the sound of a great weight landing, a slow tearing in the sky. When it hits him, there was a bright white light. Do you want to say anything else about that? I guess the thing to say was that along with my decision to make an 11,500 book, I'd prepackaged the rhetoric okay, it might only be 11,500 words, but you try cutting one of those words. Um, and then the New Yorker were in touch and were very interested in publishing it, but it was too long, so they said, you need to halve it. Um, that call came in on a Monday from my agent when I was coming back from a soccer game. I, was, uh, I just started work uh, in a, a post in university, um, but over that week, because they wanted this cut by Friday, um, I, I did, I halved it. They had a pretty good idea themselves about what they thought should stay and or how to how to shape that edit. I didn't look at that originally. I did my own and then I kind of overlaid them and the templates were almost identical. There was a few places where they, they'd made one choice, I'd made a different one, but ultimately they were really, it just meshed. Um, and so there was this scramble to, to, to cut this 11,500 word, try cutting one word novel into a 6,000 word story. Um, and it was, again, it was an amazing process. This is why you have to love writing. You've got to love writing to be able to do it because actually you've got to love the game of it. You've got to love the process, the patterns, the, the challenges of it itself. And so the edge of the shoal was was created out of Cove. It was, again, it was a further distillation of, of this novel. Where do you write? I mean, in my head, we've spoken about that. I write on my feet a lot. 
um, I would guess there's the state of writing and there's the act of writing. So a lot of a lot of that takes place when I'm busy. I like to be up and, and practical and doing stuff. But when it comes time to write, a space is very important to me. I need I need my own space. I need to be very much left alone so I can immerse myself into the act of getting the words on the page. And I've done that since I since I since I started writing really in the shed in mum's garden i live i live right next door that's where i'm sitting now it was wrecked after 15 years two weeks ago but i've since given it a new roof and a new floor so um and, and i also had a we live in a cabin and I'd, I'd built a kind of writing bunker in that which i wrote the dig and i wrote uh, everything i found the beach in bird blood snow and cove and then the the baby came along and the writing room wall had to be moved two meters down the room to make a bed so I know I'm back in the shed what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing I don't need to and I like the act of putting the writing on the page so ultimately it's not about getting away from it it's more a recognition that in order to write well and to write strongly and to do things which aren't writing there's always stories that come along and that that's part of writing who do you show your work to first to get feedback uh, my my wife, who's who's been my partner since twenty two, twenty three years, and she's an excellent first reader because she's a reader. She's not an editor. She's not in the publishing industry. She's not a critic. She just loves to read um, and reads avidly and widely. So it's a very good sounding post as to the effectiveness of a story. It's got more difficult as I've as I've written, I think, because perhaps her. As you're hijacked to an extent as a writer and you're turned into a certain thing and, and on one level there's perhaps not as much faith that she can turn around to me and say that's crap you know i don't understand that i don't get that bit but that was never really it, it was more that she would react and saying why are you writing or you know this isn't you know this isn't there yet um it could be very difficult writing about things is it, is it a recognizable dig for example well she she read a first draft of that and I think she said, you know, that's the most astonishing thing you've written yet, but I never want to read it again. Um, that was that. So uh, that's the sort of reaction I'm looking for, that there is an emotional power there, and, and she's a great barometer of her. How have you dealt with rejection? Just write harder. I mean, I think rejection's fuel. It turns to fuel. What is your favorite word? So, yeah, the most appropriate word in any given instance. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, not at all. Thanks for your questions. As I said, it's in times like this, you actually, this is, this is, these sort of conversations are when you actually go, yeah, well, actually I am a writer. I am, you know, I'm answering questions about the process. So it, it makes you feel a little more real sometimes. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Same time next week. <laughs> exactly. You can lay on a couch next time if you want. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Cunnan Jones, author of Still Aside. If you like today's show, check out my interview with John McGregor, who is a British author who wrote a story based in community about the disappearance of a young schoolgirl. His novel, Reservoir 13, was also adapted into a BBC radio miniseries. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay safe and healthy. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.